Welcome to session 59 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 28th of February. Today we'll be looking at Deuteronomy 17 to 20 and Psalm 59. But so far in Deuteronomy, we've read through the beginning of Moses' sermons to the new generation of Israelites. We noted how the perspective shifted, so now it seems like the narrator is looking back at this time in Israel's history from their future and from the other side of the river. We read as Moses recapped how the Israelites got here from Egypt, reminding the people where they've come from and what God has done. He then moved on to his sermons, challenging the Israelites to avoid idolatry and to follow the Lord's command. He reminded the people that they are a chosen people, not because of their might or righteousness, but because of his faithfulness and goodness. They were to be obedient if they wanted to experience his blessings. And so Moses moved on to recap and restate the laws, starting with Israel's worship. They were to avoid idolatry, dealing harshly with those who suggested otherwise. They were to continue in ritual purity and in practices like the tithe. Then yesterday we read how justice was to be a key part of their worship. They were to look after the poor and to judge rightly. So let's jump in with Deuteronomy 17 to 20. The next section of the law from Moses picks up on the theme of justice by going through the laws that guide those who judge. But before Moses gets there, he has one last topic about worship he wants to discuss. Those who worship other gods. We've already covered that those that lead others to worship other gods. But Moses wants to make sure that even those who do it in quiet and don't tell others need to be punished. It is a corruption that should not be allowed to spread. And so we move to the instructions on Israel's leaders. When an issue is too important or too complex for the people to judge themselves, they can come to the priests and appointed judges. Whatever the priests and judges decree is then the answer. The people were not to take justice into their own hands and decide to go against the priests and judges' answers. A functioning society needs order. Moses then moves on to kings, knowing that eventually the people will seek to appoint a king over themselves. In other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the king was almost all-powerful. Whatever they said was law. They could do whatever they want and everyone had to obey them. But here the king isn't actually given any particular authority or power. The people are not told to obey him or that he should be the one to judge their conflicts. Really, there are only two main instructions for the kings. First, to not be greedy and acquire lots of stuff for themselves horses, wives, gold and silver. Secondly, they must make their own copy of the law and they should keep it with them always and read it regularly. Basically, the most important thing about a king is their heart. These rules are to encourage the future kings to be men after God's heart, caring about the things he cares about. We then come back to the Levites and priests with instructions for their provisions, which we've seen multiple times before. The next type of leader Moses covers is the prophet. And at first he lists the kind of behaviours that someone might commit that would claim they could do prophecy but actually are forbidden and ungodly. These abominable practices include trying to hear from other gods, speaking to dead people or discovering the future. In each of these cases the people are trying to get supernatural information outside of their relationship with God. But Moses encourages the people they don't need to use these abominable practices because God will rise up prophets who will speak to them and reveal what God is saying. This comes with a warning that some might pretend to be prophets when they are not. The simple litmus test is 
have they prophesied something that didn't end up happening? Then they are false prophets. A whole study could be done just on this, but it's worth noting that Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy are not the same. The Old Testament prophet was an individual called out from many to speak on behalf of God. It was essential that they hear and speak accurately as the whole nation depended on them. In the New Testament, prophecy is given to many in the church. We all get to hear from God and can share what we've heard him say. But in this, as Paul says, we prophesy in part. That's 1 Corinthians 13 verse 9. In modern prophecy, we sometimes make mistakes. The test then is not, did it come true? And if not, they must be a false prophet. The test is really, if it didn't come true, does the person who said it acknowledge that and own up to their mistakes rather than claiming that they're still divinely appointed? This brings us to the last section of rules in Deuteronomy, focusing on civil and judicial laws, including the military and elements of social justice. The rules on cities are much of what they, we've heard before. The people are to set up cities of refuge for who, people who killed by accident so they could flee and not be killed in retaliation. The laws on war are also fairly familiar to us. When they wage war with cities that are not part of the land promised to them, they are to offer peace first and then failing that, go in and kill everyone. But when waging war against cities within the land promised to them, they are just to go in and destroy everything. When we look to Deuteronomy 2, I explain that I believe this is because the people are to purge all the traces of the descendants of the Nephilim from the land. But that's Deuteronomy 17 to 20. Now let's look at Psalm 59. This psalm is attributed to King David and refers to 1 Samuel 19 verses 11 to 12 when Saul sent men to David's house to kill him. The psalm falls into the category of lament psalm. Here's a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. So we have verses 1 to 2, prayer to God. Verses 3 to 8, the complaint against the wicked. Verses 9 to 10, trusting God. Verses 11 to 15, curses on the wicked. And then verses 16 to 17, praise to God. The psalmist opens with his request to God. Deliver and protect me, O God. The enemies are rising up against them, pursuing evil and seeking their blood. Next comes the core of the psalmist's complaint. The enemies are chasing them to take their life, despite the fact that the psalmist has done nothing wrong. The psalmist then uses this as a parallel for all of Israel's enemies that might try and tear Israel down. The psalmist asks that God punish these other nations for their wickedness. Then the psalmist turns back to their own problems. Their enemies are like howling dogs, shouting lies and abuse. They think they can do whatever they like. But God is above all and he sees all. He mocks the attempts of the psalmist's enemies and Israel's enemies. And so the psalmist declares their trust in God. God is their strength and their fortress because he is a faithful and loving God. From there, we move back to requests. The psalmist asks that God doesn't do away with their enemies quickly. If so, the people will then soon forget and slip back into wickedness. Instead, they ask that God make an example of their enemies, weakening them and trapping them in their own wickedness. Let all the people see that it was their own curses, lies, wrath and wickedness that led to their own destruction, so that others might learn to avoid these. This finally leads the psalmist back to praise. They will sing praises of their God, who is their strength and their fortress, because he is a faithful and loving 
God. It's worth mentioning at this point that if tomorrow is the 29th of February, because it is a leap year, there will be no video. So you can have a day off, you can relax, you can catch up on stuff that you've missed. And we'll pick back up on the 1st of March.